I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, here to stand with you against autonomous technologies, runaway markets, and weaponized media that threaten human cognition, solidarity, and survival. It's time to play together. This is Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, activist, musician, professor, Chenjirai Kumanyika. It's about understanding how does liberation happen in real, practical, historical examples. And to me, it's almost always coalition. Chenjirai will be helping us understand media and activism in an era of renewed racism and repression. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. A whole lot's been happening here at Team Human lately. We continue to reach out to our listeners for support. You can go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find out about our many subscription options. You can get access to our message boards and speak pipe, a signed copy of my upcoming book, Team Human, as soon as it's out in January. You can ask for a monologue on the question or topic of your choosing and a whole lot more. All of that's at teamhuman.fm. You can also find our show and written article versions of my monologues on Medium. Just find the link at teamhuman.fm or go to medium.com slash at Rushkoff. I also just finished recording the audio for the Team Human audiobook, and I'm looking forward to that coming out simultaneously with the book on January 22nd. So please, if you've got the means... Or if your company does, please pre-order the book from wherever you order books. Pre-orders help stores justify carrying the book. It may be a silly system, but advance orders are really our only way as people of demonstrating to the book industry what it is we want to read. And I promise you, the Team Human book, a manifesto really, it will not 
disappoint. I was at a dinner party the other night when a well-to-do woman who I know, an ardent Hillary supporter in the last election, and a great donor to many progressive issues, she put down her wine glass and said to no one really in particular, maybe 150 years is long enough. It took a while to figure out what she was talking about. What she was referring to was affirmative action and public housing and social services and urban renewal and really everything else that she perceived to be part of the vast effort at reparations for black people since the Civil War. So I guess after more than a century of such programs, she thinks, African Americans, they still have lower employment, worse health, less education, and fewer assets than their counterparts in other ethnic categories— And so she says, uh, other minorities figuring it out without these advantages. So why should Koreans and Mexicans be able to work all this out, but not the blacks? I just didn't know where to start. I mean, everybody else at the dinner was as shocked as I was by this. They were just kind of silent. And eventually people started to explain that, well, unlike Koreans and Mexican immigrants to the United States, African-Americans were shipped to America as slaves. They didn't arrive to working class neighborhoods with extended families and mutual support. Once freed, they didn't even get the 40 acres and a mule once promised by General Sherman. They just got more prejudice and lynching and segregation and eventually social policies designed really no more for reparation than they were for separation. Housing projects don't simply house, they also segregate and isolate. And she'd had a few glasses by then, and so she felt free to follow her ahistorical logic to its conclusion, that everyone should get the same chance to advancement. She said, no preferential treatment should be given to anybody, it's only fair. And thankfully, I wasn't the only one trying to explain to her that everyone isn't actually beginning at the same place. It's like a race where certain people start out two laps ahead, not because of affirmative action, but because of wealth. The kid with the wealthy parents doesn't have to hold down a job while going to college. They got the luxury of taking a gap year or an unpaid internship after college, or they get use of a free apartment in the city while pursuing entry-level jobs at their parents' friends' firms. I, myself, I just agreed to talk to the sons of some former high school friends of mine about their careers, and they only knew me or how to find me because we're from the same elite suburban enclaves. And I know I don't need to argue to you about the logical lapse in this premise that America has been making some legitimate effort to promote the welfare of its black citizens for 150 years, or that leveling the playing field is even possible without also redistributing the assets that everybody starts with when the, when the starter's gun goes off. But what's interesting to me is that something had given this woman permission to share what had likely been on her mind for a long time. There's a 
kind of civic amnesia that seems to have taken a hold of even many formerly progressive people. And it's freeing them to consider whether, well, whether we can just jettison the social justice baggage that we've been carrying around since at least the civil rights era, if not the civil war, and just enjoy being privileged. You know, all this compassion is really just a form of disempowerment in the long run anyway, and it's failed, so screw it. And I expect such thinking from the kind of bigoted distant relatives that I'm forced to mix with at a funeral, or even some of my undergraduate students when they're, when they're trying to kind of figure out how the world works. But I don't expect it from people kind of in my own social circle. I, I understand that even thoughtful people, especially if they're stoned or drunk, they might try on regressive ideas for a moment or two, but they're usually quick to dismiss them before they actually come out of their mouths. But now I'm attending town meetings and school board meetings where people want to know why they have to pay school tax if they don't have kids in school, or why they have to pay into uh, in for someone else's health insurance or health problems, or why we have to spend money on, on ramps so that disabled people can access public buildings. I should be glad that people are asking the questions that are truly on their minds, right? It's better to ask than to repress. But I can't help but suspect that the, the ethical standards on which our, our social contracts are based, that they're beginning to erode. You know, the, the, the lowermost limits on what is an acceptable social stance are lowering still more. You know, on, the, on the one hand, we can blame Trumpism. We're all becoming inured to comments where immigrants are called animals and black people are called dumb and Nazis are called fine people. You know, likewise, Trump's successful redefinition of presidential power and political norms has lowered the bar for what potential adversaries will accept. So now it's permissible for the president to do things like firing the attorney general and replacing him with a con man. I mean, this is stuff he could not have gotten away with, at least not gotten away with so easily earlier in his term. But now Democrats are keeping their powder dry for what they're assuming will be more egregious violations of the public trust yet to come. When the lines around permissible behavior are changed, the standards change everywhere. So when the president considers whether it's appropriate to use the military to mow down immigrants, the liberals of the suburbs begin to consider whether it's appropriate to tell black people just to get their collective act together already. And I suspect the real underlying cause for this what do we call it? Newfound freedom of inappropriate speech has less to do with social goods failure than its successes. The, the anxiety around affirmative action and the promotion of equal rights is that they're finally working well enough for it to be giving white folks and wealthy folks a run for their money. So, for example, it's harder to get into a competitive college now than it was a decade ago. And that's 
partly because all the kids who previously couldn't afford to go now know about scholarships or financial aid, or even that college is a viable alternative for them. You know, so while, while public education for the poor still lags terribly behind everyone else's, black unemployment is steadily declining and college graduations are increasing. So while anything approaching economic equality or opportunity is still, is still quite elusive, it's more a product of black families beginning with less than one-tenth of the assets of their white counterparts, white families, even the wealthiest ones, are beginning, just beginning to feel the pressure of genuine competition for the stuff they used to take for granted. You know, we live in a world where a wealthy white kid with a B average can now lose his spot in college to a black kid from the projects with a B average or a B plus average, or maybe he's got an A average. And what's the point of being wealthy, of working one's way to the top, if not to deliver a competitive advantage to one's kids? It's a weird logic, this combination of libertarian survival of the fittest with legacy advantage for the already wealthy. It's contradictory, and ultimately, it flies in the face of American values. But this is a conversation we should not fear. We should welcome it. If the wealthy feel free enough to openly discuss their misgivings about the progressive policy agenda, then we should feel confident enough in our convictions to entertain their fears and help them find their way back to their humanity. I'm delighted to welcome my colleague and friend, Chenjirai Kumanyika, to Team Human. Chenjirai may be best known for getting kicked out of a Trump rally for being a black man. He's also a hip-hop artist, a university professor, and the host of the Peabody award-winning podcast, Uncivil. Chenjirai is one of my personal heroes, and I was honored when he agreed to travel all the way to the basement media squad at Queens College to sit in the booth and speak his truth. So the, the kind of where I wanted to start, at least for our uh, our listeners, is kind of how does a nice guy like you end up in academia? I mean, <laughs> as a comp, because you know what I mean. If I if I look at the videos of you as a, a like a hip hop star, I mean, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, I want to play um, things I've seen actually oh, yeah, on there. Yeah. It's a really interesting song to me. Because it doesn't, it doesn't tell a linear single character. Well, the video doesn't tell a linear single character mm. story. elude the meaningless appreciation of this mediocre nation i've heard the modest repetition of empty words without tradition turn original verbs into submission i smell blissful ignorance addiction but i guess i wouldn't be right if i said a blunt was like a baby pipe there ain't gonna be no revolution tonight half my warriors as high as a kite floss and they lost all they fight for me it's this whole idea of you have multiple perspectives on a single reality so it's like doing this other 
Oh man, I'm, I'm it's so it's, another thing. Yeah, it's cool that you that you even took the time to to check that out. You know, I wrote. You know, the real question, by the way, is how did I wind up becoming a hip hop artist? And the answer is <laughs> the answer that I sometimes tell people is, you know, some friends and I were like, you know what, the hip hop game is missing something. Like what the game needs is a group that's kind of like the Fugees, but not quite as talented. You know. <laughs> So then we were like, so, you know, but I actually wrote things I've seen. I was working actually in an emergency room. I was making demos and it was, I was, I was making on the side, but I was, my, my sort of official job was I was working in the emergency room in the South side of Chicago. And, you know, emergency room is like, it's kind of like similar and obviously linked to like being, being, being a fire person where people talk about one of the most stressful things is you could be sitting there. And it's just like you're waiting around. There's not much happening. You know, it's just machines kind of beeping, beep, beep. And then all of a sudden, boom, some, it comes in right. and it's like a baby might die, you know, or a baby does yeah. die or a person, you know. So the chaos of the universe, you know, and that was actually the lyrics. I remember walking home one day. I just said, you know, you wouldn't believe the things I've seen in your wildest dreams. The chaos of the universe so peaceful and serene turns in split seconds to bloodshed, violence and screams, right? And um, of course, I was saying it like a rapper, and and you know, then my friend of mine said, "Chinch, that's cool, but watch when Irina sings it. Then it's going to be really cool." <laughs> right. But when she does it, it looked it it seems as if the reason it's set there and that there's like ER and morgue stuff is because that's the result of the violence in the world, not because you happen to. Right. Have and been right. There. Right. And I mean, and it was. I mean, I don't think I don't think that the director Brian Belichick knew that um, I had worked in an in ER. Uh, I think that it was. Each, as you said, it was each art, each or the, each of the verses was folks trying to tune in on that. I think my, you know, my folks grasped that sentiment, you know, just like something about uncertainty and just, you know, chaos and us kind of wrestling with that. Kind of like now, a mm. lot of us are, I think a lot, I think there's a deep, there's a deep feeling of unsettledness that I think is yeah. politically, you know, as I'm sure we'll get to, but, you know, I think is, you know. It's interesting to think when people feel like that, what are the political tendencies that emerge from that, right? Do we run into the arms of tyrants? Do we make more art? <laughs> Do we create? I mean, we released our first out that we made that song right around like 2000. Wow. So it was pre September 11th. Right. But it was huh. kind of a, a, you know, a turning point. Wow. Oh, so that's like Gulf War One. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And all, and uh, WTO and all that right. stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. But, you know, WTO was the beginning. Right. In some ways, of people going, oh, I get it. This neoliberalism, hands around the world, global television era, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall thing, has a darker side to it. You know, that it's it's just we've cleared the way for this massive corporate behemoth to just take over our world. Even us little internet people, we thought, oh, we're going to connect everybody and build this internet. Right, right. And that was that was very much the moment we were in. It was very yeah. utopian. There were all these, you know, all those startups, and you would you would get taken to them as hip hop artists. They'd be like, "This this company, we got to do an interview with this company. It's going to change everything." And it's like, no, actually, they're not going to exist in about seven months. Yeah, you know. So, but but to just move, just kind of get to your other question though, too. I mean, part of the way I wound up in academia, right? Out of that is that, you know, I. I ultimately like to learn. I like to make music, but what I didn't even understand fully about myself was I like to learn. So I used to, I, you know, one thing, and I'm I'm not. Well, you went to high school in like Philly, right? Well, I went to high school in I went to high school in Baltimore, and then briefly in State College, Pennsylvania. Oh. Um, and were you like studious? 
No, not at no. all. I was a horrible high school student. Uh, didn't you know? Just questioning everything. I mean, I well, that's not horrible yeah, in would, itself. But yeah, you didn't but, get. You didn't yeah, read I the just, assignments. Yeah, I just. I, I read. Yeah, I just didn't really get it. Um, and I was. And I was. I mean, I think there was. There was elements of it where I was lazy and I was a kid. But I think also I really. I just the learning style of, of that kind of mode didn't work. But I just want to say that. Um, you know, I would while I was making music, I was like really consuming a lot of documentaries and stuff. And I gotta say, I mean, because I, I don't, I don't remember exactly when the Persuaders came on, but it was during that phase while I was making music. Two thousand four. Yeah, so was it was a little thing. later in our yeah. career, but that that was how that was like my sort of pre grad school thing. I would huh. watch these things and I would consume them. And I I used to have on Michael Moore's like The Awful Truth. I had it you know, in the studio constantly, both seasons. Mm. And I would and people would be like, why are we watching this? We're like rappers. We should be watching. You know, and I was like, no, we're watching The Awful Truth. And so I think that I, I didn't understand that there was actually a discipline that and disciplines and a history of like a thing called cultural studies mm. where people were thinking about culture and music and the political intersections. The funny thing is, I mean, it's a whole different conversation in a way, but, you know, 2004, it was that front line that, that I helped do called The Persuaders, which was about marketing and social control yes. and PR. But the whole idea of calling it The Persuaders was a sort of an inside joke because in the 1950s, Vance Packard wrote a book called The Hidden Persuaders mm. about the psychologists that are creating all the advertising and screwing up our, our minds. The idea of in 2004 doing The Persuaders was as if to say, well, it's the same thing, only now they're not even hidden. Now right. it's just there right and, and that to me in some ways is is what the trump thing is kind of doing the thing that's different is they're not even ashamed of it they're not even hiding it they're not even making excuses for it it's there just... is there is and i think you know it's that is a, it's I, I, you're so you're so right and so it's really interesting and i think important right now to name what is precisely sort of new and what is continuous about the Trump administration, mm. right? Because you, you certainly have, you know, a set of kind of centrist democratic sensibility that's just like our norms are being violated and or Trump is crazy and he's insane and he's erratic. And this is not like a, this is not like this is not like a result of a political project. It's just his sort of whims. And that's wrong. Right. I mean, that's certainly right. wrong and ahistorical. But at the same time. So you know, it's it's. I wouldn't say there's nothing new, as you were saying, mm -hmm. right? Like, right? Black people are like, of course, yeah. We know the country is white supremacist, right? I mean, you know, I have a podcast about the Civil War. It's like this is not new, but there's something is new, and I think you're right. I think when it's explicit, it you know, there's a way in which Trump is publicly shifting norms isn't the right word, but a, but when you start attacking the media in the way he's attacking it and saying like and attacking like the idea of truth. And then even attacking, like, you, you just can dismiss anything at a particular time, and that becomes pu a public, open, explicit sensibility. That's a shift that I think is, like, you know, reminds you of elements of fascism and things like that, right? I mean, I don't know. Well, it's the only experience I ever had with it was, you know, a girlfriend who was in a cult. Mm. And the cult leader did both of the things that Trump does. You know, first, you make people do stuff that goes against their better judgment. And you slowly up the scale. So you send out, you know, Sean Spicer to lie about the number of people at this so that now he's going to then next he'll lie about the war and next right. he'll lie about this. So you keep you keep upping the, the, the stakes for them in terms of they can't go back now that they've done all these lies. So there's that. And I watch everyone around him is egged on to do these increasingly uh, 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 committed 
lies right. or 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 right. you're excuses. More, you're more and more implicated. Yeah. Right, and then you can't get out. Then right. you're stuck. And the other thing is this um, um, almost. Uh, uh, it's like straight out of the CIA QBark interrogation manual. You know, turn the lights on, turn the lights off. You don't know if it's night or if it's day. Oh, yes, you're in Germany. Oh, no, we're in Poland. Oh, your rest of your, your accomplices are here. No, there's no one here. You know, that you get so confused as to what's real that you end up depending on that guy, even though you know he might be lying. Mm. He's the only source of possible True. Right. You're like, I know he's here. And it's right. like, and it's there's a disorientation. It's like the anchor store in a shopping mall. Right. You know, the shopping mall is all designed to confuse you where you are. You don't know where you are. But there's Macy's on that end and JCPenney over there. Right. My, 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 you know, <laughs> wow. My, my That's a thing? I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. really a thing? Yeah, it's wow. A really thing. <laughs> yeah, but it makes sense because I do. I'm like, okay. So, I, you know, it, it also, it's interesting because we're talking about music, you know. Um, there's a, a popular book called The Hitman, which I don't know if you hmm. have read, but it, this book is like what it, one of the things they talk about is the emergence of a certain kind of ex- music executive persona. And what they talk about in that book is how different um, record executives learned this persona and started to perform it when it was actually there was nothing really you know no real trace of the of some of the, the elements that they showed early in their personality and they talked about how that way of seeming unpredictable and all that kind of thing and, and seeming crazy would actually you know really serve them later when they had to try to you know in a, in a sort of kind of authoritarian fashion in their ability to roll things down and so that's something i also think about when you see you know again you know democrats always characterize trump oh he's just he's just whimsical and crazy you don't know what he's going to do and i'm like i you know i'm like i think this helps him you know when the, the more we feed into that character i think that really helps cuz he i think he wants to be seen as unpredictable Right. And I think that he, because he, in his mind, this is like somehow part of his art. It's like art of the deal. Right. It's like yeah. some weird, <laughs> you know, but it's, I think it's a, but I think it really does. So I, I think that we have to really be careful about the narratives we put on Trump. I mean, even in the, even in, as, even as we try to console ourselves therapeutically by like insulting and critiquing, but I think some really harmful and deceptive narratives have crept in, even on the left. Yeah. And it's also, you know, it's dangerous to blame him for one's own feelings, too. You know, mm. I, I keep wanting to make us responsible for how we feel about stuff. It's like, no, he can't do anything to you. You know, I mean, he can. He right. can send his guns after you, but we still have some, you know, I still have autonomy. Right? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> my thoughts yes. are mine. You know, if I'm, in his, if I'm in his cult, it's my fault. Not his fault. That's right. Right. Yeah. No, I think I think that ultimately, you know, we have to take that thing. Otherwise, we've just ceded all of that power, you know, uh, elsewhere. And and not just, you know, it's it's power and it's just also analysis, truth. I mean, how did we get here? Right. We didn't, you know, it's, things, right. you know, I, I, I don't I believe in collective processes and historical processes that arrive us here, not, you know, one person <laughs> well, then makes that, a bunch of decisions. Right. And then you look at, well, then how did, how did we get here? I mean, what a lot of people like to say is, oh, this was, you know, the, the white, lower middle working classes reaction to neoliberalism and too much, you know, trans intersectional change that just upset them too fast. Oh, and that's yeah. how they got here. Uh, Once again, it's, yeah. the, it's, awful. it's the, the Browns and the gays <laughs> and have, the Jews, have led us in the Jews. Oh, no, it's definitely the Jews have led us astray with their identity politics once again right. and conspiracies. Of course. Well, Soros is 
pays me every day right. just to get out of bed. <laughs> I'm that I'm that corrosive a force. <laughs> that but you know that's interesting too. I mean that's this is there was a great there was a great uh discussion on NYC the other day which sent me down a rabbit hole of more learning about I think the origin of the, of these uh Jewish conspiracy theories which I'm sure you you know a lot about um was fascinating to me because of how much, you know, the way in which at a time around capitalism's origins where people are going through upheavals, right? And because of you know, because, you know, as I understand, mind you, this is, I'm, by talking with you about this now, I'm learning it. I'm just going to be yeah. clear. But that, as I understand it, you know, some narratives essentially say, partially because Jewish people were excluded from guilds and all that, they wound up in certain kinds of sectors that people associated with finance. But then what that led, the you know, a lot of people to do is to essentially cause them to see them as the embodiment of the problems with capitalism since capitalism is abstract, mm-hmm. right? So people aren't thinking capitalism is doing this to us. It becomes the Jews are doing this to us. And, you know, but they're trying to deal also with like economic upheaval and all the different changes that are happening. And I'm like, that's also like, and then it seems like historically every phase where that's happening, the Jews become a scapegoat. And I say this as somebody who, you know, was in Charlottesville, right? And I was in that church when the when the when the young men uh, surrounded that when the uh, when these the fascists kind of surrounded uh-huh. Nazi dudes surrounded it with torches, and then I was there the next morning when the whole thing went down. I was there the whole day, and I and I I did it did strike me afterwards that the overarching sentiment was clearly anti-Semitism, and that that because of the because we're in a moment because a lot of the momentum of the protest movements I was in Ferguson and I've been to all these different places was so much based on black and brown um anti-blackness and anti-brownness and white supremacy that somehow the anti-semitic narrative in the immediate aftermath of Charlottesville kind of wasn't wasn't the most foremost narrative even though when I was there it was big swastika flags right there was even a really interesting moment that really il- illustrates the hierarchy going on here was I was I was this is not funny but I was I was standing right next to a bunch of these guys filming them and I had this on camera and one of the and they're just hurling all kinds of insults and this and that and so and so and n word and then the guy goes he's looking at like a black protester and he goes Jay Z told you niggers Jay Z told you niggers don't trust these Jews. Which was a kind of interesting moment, right? I was like, oh, so you listen to Jay-Z, you know, and two, you know, like you're, so, you know, it was like, it was almost like, like, that's an interesting kind of a insult right. slash appeal. Right. Like it's an invitation into anti-Semitism. It is. Well, I mean, the, I think that the basis of their critique, I think, is that because the Jews were an exiled people mm-hmm. and because... Pa- Part, because we were an exiled people, exiled people, our understanding of God and sanctity was not place-based. We mm. didn't have our holy soil, right? We weren't in Israel, wherever it was that we thought we came from. We're just wandering around in Europe. And every place we go, we, intentionally or not, by our very existence, we undermine the local God. Mm. We've got universal, cosmopolitan, abstract monotheism. And we're like, oh, you worship this local, you know, Gandalf or whatever your local god right. is. Yeah, fine, whatever. <laughs> go for it, you know, but we're not there. So everywhere we go, we're both, we're bringing in the foreigner, we're promoting cosmopolitanism, internationalism, the earliest forms of neoliberalism. The only jobs we would have really are, if we can't own anything, if we can't be in a guild, all we can do is be intermediaries between 
other people. So we right. become the media conspiracy in that sense. The great Jewish media conspiracy right. is sort of real that way. So that's two strikes against us. And then as immigrant people, wherever we go, we then identify with other immigrant people. So now we're the 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 just as I feel like whenever I move into a, a neighborhood that I can afford, I'm like the advance guard of the yuppie scum, you know, on that <laughs> yeah. sense. Because, yeah. you know, first the, the, the you know, Jewish artist moves in and then the bankers come because I made it safe for them. Right. Right. But on the other hand, I make it dangerous for the whites. You know, the Jew right. moves in and it's like, who's next is you guys, mm. you know. And that's I mean. Which basically, I mean, historically, it would just be the Moors or something, I right, guess. Right, exactly, know? yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, the Spanish, they get rid of the Moors, and once you're all gone, what do they do? Inquisition! Now, right. <laughs> now let's get rid of the Jews. Right. And it's like, for the last 500 years, I feel like the Jews have been trying to convince the whites, no, 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 we're on you, we're not on the Arab side, we're right. on the white side, we're well, like you. that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I think we should have picked the Arab side. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, that's the thing, that's that's where, you know, it's so, it's, so it's, it's interesting interesting to and i think that you know not only was that that kind of learning for me crucial to getting into uh you know just the thing i actually one of the now i wouldn't say one of the few things i like about the academy but one of the main things i like about the academy one of the one of the kernels of the academy that i hope that we can preserve as it as it takes on an increasingly corporate market shape yeah but also in podcasting the podcasting projects that i've worked on were like really motivated by like we have to start to understand things historically well that's the big thing so you got like a peabody right or is that a pulitzer what was yeah, that yeah well yeah it was a peabody i think that yeah. i think the peabody is they they, they would they peabody would, are, would you know some people tr talk about it as the pulitzer of radio because there was no right. pulitzer of radio <laughs> right or you know no the guy that made uh emergence of cool with me he got a peabody it's like his big thing it's his favorite yeah it was i mean it was it's it was really humbling that's like a and real incredible. deal yeah i mean and that was that was the show which was that about? Was that it was it was it was the, I was the Peabody folks told us if you know we we only submitted the raid. They said if we had submitted the whole thing, we would have it would have been for, for the, the whole, whole thing. project. So yeah. it was the first episode, and this this episode was about the biggest undercover sort of operation in the covert mission in the Civil War that almost no one knows about. But was led by a, a black woman and black soldiers, and the black woman happened to have been Harriet Tubman. So this is like way later in her career. So and they 700 uh, enslaved people were freed on this mission. So, you know, this where one were night, they? <laughs> they were in uh, Beaufort, where would now be like Beaufort, South Carolina. Where they had a detention camp or something? No, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's an interesting. Basically, there was a there was a union uh, sort of unit that was buried in the heart of the Confederacy down here. They had set up shop. But it, were, it was very difficult for them to figure out exactly how to strike because they're kind of feel like maybe they're outnumbered, right? I mean, they can't, you know, they can't like pull up Google and figure out exactly where right. the enemy is, right? And it's like you're surrounded by all these like sort of swamps and rivers. And and in the midst of that, this became a place, Port Royal, where uh, enslaved, uh, formerly enslaved people, fugitives would just come. They, they Oh, the Union is there? So from all around, oh. they started to come there. So they so all of a sudden, they like just refugees, basically. Refugees coming to this camp. So they, they were kind of sitting there, they're collecting those people. And in that context, they bring, they bring Harriet Tubman to sort of and help to deal with these people, right? To translate and all this other stuff. Cause she's, you know, she's been, she's up in like, you know, she's up in uh, New York, you know, and just in a different part of her career. And she comes down and as, as these, as these generals are trying to figure out like, what are they going to do? 
you know, meanwhile, these some of these formerly enslaved people are telling Harriet Tubman things, right? They're saying like, hey, you know, uh, on this particular river, you know, I come, you know, there's a, pl- a bunch of plantations on this river. Somebody else is coming and saying, hey, you know what? I know where the landmines are that, on this river because the Confederates made me place the landmines there. So I know exactly mm-hmm. where they are. So Harriet Tubman kind of comes up and she's like, you know what? She walks into the main uh, general there, Hunter, who she know, and she says, you know, she goes, I think I have an idea about how we can strike, you know, and it's on the Cumbie River, right? And it's a river that has nine plantations along this one river. Mm-hmm. And so the episode kind of recounts this process where they where they go and they and they free all these people. How would they pull it off? Harriet Tubman could help. The banks of these rivers were usually lined with cannons, but the Confederates had pulled them from several of these rivers. One of them was the Cumbie. Only a few riflemen remained. And while the river was filled with explosive mines, the men who laid them had escaped and told Tubman exactly where they were. She is not so much the, the scout or the spy. She's the one who took the information, gathered it, put it together, disseminated it to the proper people, which made this raid possible. One other thing I should mention is that the, you know, um, the other thing, the two other things that are inter- make this interesting that are going on is that it's a unit of uh, black soldiers. Actually, the first really real unit of black soldiers, even before the 54th. Mm. And they kind of, you know, these these folks down here, almost like a rogue unit down there, down there in Beaufort in South Carolina, have decided that they're going to arm these folks. And so it's uh, it's a really interesting story. And I think that... Um, and it's a story, in a way, it's a story of coalition. I mean, Hunter, you know, I mean, it's, this is a tricky thing, Doug, and I'm curious to see what you think about this. Like, basically, there are some people who have told this story where it was like all Harriet Tubman, uh-huh. you know, because, because in a way, history has robbed black people of agency in so many areas, right? So we would like it to just have been all her. And I do think she came up with it and led it. There's no question. But there was also like a crucial role was played by the the generals that sort of authorized the strike, and one other general named James Montgomery, who was the leading guy on it, Colonel James Montgomery. Right, and he's white, me. and he's white, yeah. and they're both white, and so it's an interesting. And there was a couple of white soldiers on it, so I think it's, I think those lessons about coalition are important to me. It's not about white saviors, right? It's about understanding how does liberation happen in real practical historical examples. And to me, it's almost always coalition. It's solidarity. It's solidarity. <laughs> if exactly. there's not there, yes. you know, and that's, you know, and it's funny because the movies that I've seen since I was a little kid right through to today are almost universally, unless it's, you know, Dirty Dozen, it's universally some Bruce Willis hero guy that figures out the whole thing or maybe some girl, you know? Right. But- Right. When you realize that, no, you know, what is heroics? Heroics is a group activity. I mean, that's my whole team human thing. Yes, Being exactly. human is a team sport. Yes. You know? And if you if you get out of the way, you know, if you stop looking up at the heroes and look down at everybody else in the room with you, you and know, that, but that was what civil rights taught us that we still don't seem to get. It's like the most powerful moments in the civil rights movement. It's like all the cops are coming. Let's sing. Right. What is singing? It's like we formed one unit out of all these people. Right. The way to the way to music just constitutes yep. a, a, a body. You know what I'm saying? Well, your band too. Band? Can I call it a band? Yeah, yeah, you could, yeah that's fine. Band. Band. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, a we're a collective group, hip hop group. group. Yeah, but band. it was not a star thing. It was again. It was this posse. You know. But that was, you know, that was, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was. It was very much that. By no, but you know, I was going to say that was we. 
despite our best efforts <laughs> to, to be stars, right? Right. Well, <laughs> we you needed, were young. We needed each other. <laughs> well, yeah, but the, the, the feeling of it is totally. of this weird little gang, this collective thing. It wasn't It like, was that. And I mean, and, and ultimately yeah. we made our best music that way. Yeah. You know, I mean, and so I think, um, so I think for me with the, with the uncivil, uh, that dance between sort of the needed narratives of black agency, right, in the Civil War and women's agency, Right. And LGBT trans and gay people's agency, all these things. We have stories that touch on all these things mixed with the, 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 this, this uh, a history of solidarity. Right? right. Balancing those two things in the storytelling was really important. Well, and the other thing that's so important to me is real history. And you talk about this. Um, I feel like even though we're living on a digital substrate, which is composed of memory. Yes. Right. And everything we've ever done is now in de- the past is indelibly uh, uh, imprinted with the fidelity of the current moment, which is disorienting in itself. You Ooh. know, I got friends from second grade coming at me on Facebook as if they're here today. And it's like, wait a minute, you are supposed to recede into the yes. past. <laughs> it's like there's no yeah, parallax. You're, right. No, no, you're right so here. Like, right. Right. But at the same time, it's like even with all that, we're denied our history. There's no sense. We are wow, so untethered. That's so interesting. It, it's it's as if I mean, you know, you look at uh, Vannevar Bush talked about the memex and computers, and what they'll do is relieve us of memory. You know, I understand it was right after World War II, and people wanted to forget what all happened. We could be relieved of memory, but this is we're now relieved of memory. It's like kids think that they're frigate black kids think their history is Black Panther. Right. right. You know, and it's like look at that. Oh, look, black people in Africa. Well, we had. Western modern cities too, just oh. like Europe. It's like that's not what makes you great. You right. Know, it's your real history that makes you great. <laughs> you don't need this myth to replace the 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 your royalty, your your sanctity. Well, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, we might need myths, but right? not that myth. But but I, but uh, yeah. But I would I I unpopularly agree with you that these myths of monarchy are really something we have to we need to worry about mm-hmm. right and i mean and it's such an interesting moment because when i was in when i was in undergraduate school i was fully i mean black panther has a history that goes back to a certain part of like uh, afrocentricity and a certain moment i think in, Af- in maybe in africana studies which was like about oh black people had great monarchic civilizations too as you're kind of pointing to right, right? you know egypt and and elsewhere inevitably it's always egypt right it's like it's not it's, it's not the other sort of other kinds of nations we're not as excited about as egypt right right and and egypt is the agricultural bs right. beginning of the same destruction of the planet as opposed to their genuine aboriginal cultures that knew my god what they knew you know what i mean right. but but it wasn't like recorded in that same way but what they understood about about the moon and the the phases of mm. the moon and the openings of the leaves and the migrations of the animals and but what you, you got but but you know i mean so what i would say is like but you got to understand like when i was when i was in third grade right like i'm dark skinned you know and I have an African name, Chinjarakumnika. I was born with it. It's a, it's a, it's my, my father took on an African name from traveling in Africa. Mm. That, those were marks against me when I was, when I was in third really? grade. I mean, when you're a black kid growing up, I would say probably even now, when you grow up as Chinjarakumnika and you're dark skin, it was like African was something to be ashamed of. I mean, it was deep. It, that's that's so internalized in certain parts of the black community. As opposed to, I mean, African is you're supposed to be ashamed of that compared to being a, a black American American. Compared so, to being black American, anything other than African, right? I mean, that African is, was literally an insult for in most for, mo, for uh, most of my 
you know, K to 12 education. People would be like, oh, you African, look at it, be African. I mean, it was literally, I'm not exaggerating at all. You could ask black people that you know. So I say that to say that, you know, when I got to college and I started studying things that were in the black nationalist tradition that dealt with pride about in Africa, even, you know, like Marcus Garvey, who, you know, and all these other things, you know, uh, and started learning about, you know, oh, okay, these things started in Africa. Although those things were happening in that kind of praise of monarchy, praise of, you know, like we're just going to make a black version of, of European civilization, you know. But it did kind of, insta- you know, I, I was attracted to that, right? Because I, I had grown up the whole time. Like Africa something to be ashamed of. And this was the first time. And, it was, and it, there was also like a moment in hip hop that started to reflect some of that as well, right? That came, you know, it was partially related to like different strands of like that broke out of the Nation of Islam and all this kind of stuff. But the bottom line is I, I understand that impulse, right? That Black Panther impulse where when because there's the, the sh- a shame and, uh, and sort of about Africa so much that people want to aspire to that. And, you know, for that, Black Panther was really emotional for me, right? Mm. But underneath that emotion, I did kind of say, like, why Why is it that, I mean, I still have friends that when we greet each other, it's like that as a sort of nostalgia from that era, when I see it, it's like, what's up, king? What's up, queen? Mm. Right? It's like, you know, to a black woman, right? It's like, what's up, queen? It's like a way of trying to say respect to you. But I have, you know, as my, as my economic, <laughs> uh, as I've studied more about the economics and you learned about something, you read like Class Struggle in Africa by Kwame Nkrumah, and you start, and you're just like, oh, wait a minute, why are we celebrating kings? Right. Since when are kings what we want to aspire right. to, right? And actually, let's talk about Wakanda, right? I mean, what, what kind of imaginary is Wakanda? I mean, I have a friend. <laughs> I have a friend who wrote a poem where he he refers to the the lead character as Barack T'Challa. <laughs> he's like, you know, he's like, it's like you got all this technology. And one friend of mine said, you got all this technology, and then you and, we, and while we struggling out in Ferguson, you putting tech on rhinos. Like what? <laughs> right? Like what kind of imaginary is this? You know, you 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 you're cool with the CIA. The CIA agent is like winds up in a way striking the the best heroic blow in the film. I mean, it's like right. what kind of imaginary? What, what's this? What's the price of having some kind of African mythological African right. pride? Right, <laughs> that was sort of what I was thinking. Yeah. And, and I'm like, well, I'm a nice white Jew from the suburbs. I can't. I was gonna say something mean about this movie, but it looks like all the black journalists really like it. So I guess I better not. But somehow. I don't know. Yeah, that was probably a good move. I mean, it was like, <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it, I was surprised at how robust the debate was about right. it. Right. And again, and I think it's, you know, you know, I, I heard you talking uh, in earlier podcast about how, you know, people think that, we're, you know, people underestimate people's intelligence. Right. And I think that even I sometimes as a critical thinker can, and, you know, as a professor can delve into that. You get pessimistic. And I was really impressed, actually, by how critically people thought about Black Panther, just the debate that happened around it. I mean, people were, you know, there was a real serious debate, I think, in the black community and around, you know, after that around Killmonger character mm-hmm. and T'Challa. And, the, and, like, you know, oftentimes too much like we have to choose one or the other. Uh-huh. Right? But, you know what I'm saying? Like, people, you know, people do think in complex ways about, about culture. They do. Well, some do. I mean, and yeah, then, right. <laughs> and then, on the other hand, I'm wondering, is democracy even the best way to try to move forward, you know? Well, you know, I mean, again, you know, things I've learned from, some in some cases, from your work is like, you know, what really are the components of democracy? If we think of democracy as a sort of, 
just the process of how we're going to elect leaders or just a particular dimensions of governance, but not as a holistic thing that includes how we're going to inform our electorate, how we're going to offer security over here. Because often when we think about democracy, it's like just political science, right? Without those pieces. So, I mean, you know, so I think, you know, my answer would be like, if if our democracy is going to be under capitalism, then it's not even democracy. No, then it's like, American Idol. Then yeah. you might as well just yeah. pick your favorite star. Yeah. You know? So it's like, if we're not teaching civics, right. which we're not, right. then how can people participate civically? Yeah, that, exactly. No, yeah, I mean, it's... So then what do we do? You go to Lippmann and Bernays, you know, you go to those guys and get a council of experts to decide how things should be Ooh. for people and, and a bunch of PR people to convince us how to vote. You know, but then it's who's ever got the best PR people wins. And right now it seems to be Donald, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, and, you know, it's funny because that's another thing I think that is great about being involved in social movements right now is that you do see some of these prefigurative moments of governance and you get to raise those kind of questions too, right? Like how, right. how are we going to make decisions about things? I mean, if you were an Occupy, you know, we just, we just were, we just in Philadelphia had, you know, were what I think was ultimately a series of successful actions around abolish ice, right? which that what the, I think the victory that we were able to claim out of that, um, after and I should say this was like work that was being led by Juntos and New Sanctuary for many many years before the the current iteration of it that happened this summer, um, and then a group of folks got together that was like a very a hodgepodge of sort of leftist incorrigible people. <laughs> we all got together and what the, the the victory was we were able to extract was Philadelphia's government while calling itself a sanctuary city had a contract with um, ICE to share data. Right. And people in, uh, you know, Latino communities knew, mm. no, no, knew this. And so this made them stop even going to police to report crimes and all these other kinds of things. I mean, just all kinds of horrors in a so-called sanctuary city. So one concrete demand that we were able to peel back was to say, listen, you got to end the, that PARS contract. It was, you know, it's called the preliminary access reporting database. And um, through people, you know, occupying the federal building, occupying City Hall, we eventually got Mayor Kenny to end PARS. Right. And this is an issue that probably people on the news can't even understand, you know, or it's not even going to be broadcast in a way that's like, oh, it's a bunch of immigrants and black people angry about something sitting in a building. Yeah, they were just. Yeah. I mean, it was it was the narratives. Yeah. The news, the news was I mean, it's gotten so simplistic. It got simplistic. I mean, probably my activist friends would like would want to like choke me for trying to praise a little bit the Philadelphia Inquirer. But I would say out of the media, overall media ecology, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the newspaper was the most valuable, right. other than the, the sort of independent media that we were making. Well, the thing that you do, though, that's that I feel like, well, it's not unique to you, but it's it feels unique to this moment, is you have compassion for those of us who don't quite get it yet. You know, I was uh, uh, on this panel. I was running, do, moderating a panel. Alicia Garza was on it. You know, oh, yeah, Black Garza, Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah. And I said something kind of stupid. She looked at me. She smiled. She breathed in, she breathed out, and then she said, like, I think what you have to understand, you know, in a in a very gently, just like, you're kind of, oh, I see, you have this, she didn't say it, but I could see what in her head she was thinking, oh, you've got this really <laughs> limited kind of stupid person's context about this, but I'm going to approach you with love because I know you mean well, right. and I'm going to open your mind to what's really happening here. Right. And it was like... 
Thank you. I mean, my thing is like, you know, and I mean, I'm just, you know, you know, I mean, I'm, but you bring, you know what I mean? You bring yeah. a kind of compassion to your work that, that I don't, I find it hard to, to, to exude that because I just get so pissed off so quickly. Well, I don't, I mean, I feel like in your work, you know, I mean, as someone who's consumed and read your work and it, it was part, like everybody, first of all, everybody learns something somewhere. So I think that all of us right. have to go back and remember that. Um, I think that the distinction I've thought about is, let me, let me just be, let me be for a moment compassionate to angry leftists, just for a second, yeah. right? One of the things I think that people are sometimes resisting um, is the the sort of saturation of like dialogue, the force where dialogue becomes the answer to everything as a way to sort of disperse other kinds of political modes of engagement. And you see this in the university all the time when there's like, you know, it's like inst- deep institutional transformational change is needed in areas of race or gender or, or, or workers' security or other kinds of things, measure, assessment measures that they're trying to implement. And then it's like people say like, yo, you need to make this concrete change. And then... The answer is let's just have a dialogue, right? Right. So I think bring all the parties to the table, right? (laughs) Bring them. It was kind of talk. So I think the dominance of dialogue, and then the entitlements that go along with that, right? Like someone who's, you know, is is not going to really read or study anything um, that has to do with like you know various dimensions of our moment and 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 oppression and all those other things, and yet it's like they're like Doug. Here's here's. I'm not going to read anything, right? I'm not going to. What I'm going to do is. I just want you to explain everything to me and while you do it, I'm going to argue with you. Right. Right. And so like, this is often like how, like, you know, centrist white folks are around race and men. Right. I got this on economics. Yeah, exactly. Invite me on, you know, onto the capitalist (laughs) show or the economist magazine. And they're like, I'm trying to explain an alternative currency or something, how that works. And they're just like, why is that? What about taxation? Will you let me finish, you know, for a friggin' second? It's oh, like you don't even know uh, where currency came from. You don't even know, exactly. you know, it's like, oh, so, so history. So I so I understand the need yeah. to say so what I, the, what I, what I, what I, what I, I kind of came at it was like there are moments of struggle like for so when we're in the abolish ice thing, right? It's like my job is not to dialogue with the police at that moment. Right. Right. Where they, like, well, like, they're the police. They're the police. Right. You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? But like, you know, so like that's a clear moment. Like this isn't about a dialogue here. This is about like it's, it's, it's I, re- I recognize this as a power struggle. Right. It's like if you're going to arrest us, do that. But now that's that moment. Right. But then there's other moments, even at the protest where there's people who are coming up who are trying to learn, who maybe don't understand everything. And if as an organizer, we can't center ourselves and have the compassion and the patience to hear that person and draw them in, then we're not really doing real organizing, you know? And all the people who really have not only been my mentors who I learned from, but the people who I think are really good at it. I mean, I think of, ironically, I mean, I do think of Malcolm X. Like, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's, there's one great clip of Malcolm X where you'll see this white reporter is saying, don't you think we've made some progress? Yeah. And he just has this big, gorgeous yeah. smile. Full of, and he just he goes he goes well, if you take a knife out of somebody's if you stick a knife in somebody's back and you just pull it out a little bit he goes he smiled he goes that's that's not really progress right <laughs> he said the healing doesn't start there and he goes even if you pull it out a couple more inches he goes that ain't progress he goes it starts when you pull it all the way out right and he's smiling and at recognizing the dignity of the person mm. and I think Cornel West is, right. is good at this. It, Unless he's writing like really polemical in the Guardian, but yeah. he's but if you but if you see like you know Cornell West is great the way he can be in front of somebody deeply disagreeing with you, 
And yet you just feel like he's just, you know, somehow he's honoring your dignity. And I just, I found just tactically, even, even beyond like me just, you know, like coming out of, just tactically, that's just so much, it's just a better way of doing things. Oh yeah, (laughs) journalism, I hate these guys. I mean, I won't even mention names, but you know, the way that they'll talk about an issue or criticize an issue is by finding the person who embodies that issue most and then doing some big magazine feature takedown of some human being. Right. You know? As the stand-in for the idea. And also storytelling, because, like, I, I, you know, I teach generation-like, you know what I'm saying? Oh, really? And, you know, the approach you have in that, right, if you think about it, I mean, you, you, there's clearly an approach, like, those of us who know you is, like, <laughs> you could have just been, like, from the gate. Like, each person, you know, we're talking to a teenager who's, like, on Facebook or whatever. She's, like, and you're, like, and you could just be, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this bullshit? You just talk, yeah. <laughs> it's like that would have been one approach to documentary. Yeah. yeah. Right. But you I found in, in the in the things that I learned from you, there's always a curiosity, right? That allows right. us to go on that journey, you know, and and then, you know, and learn, even though I think where we ultimately get to is like a is a, a profound and critical structural analysis. But it, it's coming from a place that's like, oh, even when you're talking to like some of these horrible People who are like, you know, with these databases and right, they're thinking the about branding. Yeah. yeah, but you're not, you know, you're not like just walking and shitting on them. Like, right. <laughs> it's like, yo, and th- and somehow that elicits, it, it, I think it's more effective. Right. More effective than a Michael Moore who they know is just like coming at them <laughs> with an axe or something. At least understand what they think they're, you know. I mean, but let me, okay, but yeah. let me just, let me ask you this. Let me push, let me just push this yeah. a little bit and ask you this. Because I do think that. The thing I think is that when people are doing the call-out moment, right, that's not for the person who's in front of you. It's for another audience. Right. And I think at moments, you know, we, we've we all had that moment where somebody calls somebody out and you watching that, you're like, yeah. Yeah. And there's times where I'm like, I mean, do you think that there's a place where it's like, that's actually more important than what the person, where, I don't care what the person in front yeah. gets it. The audience that hears that righteous truth-telling happen is more important. It's tricky. I- it's tricky because because I'm mean, a genuine question. I don't know. As someone who's living in a Christian culture, mm-hmm. you know, this this there's a catharsis that goes along with watching a crucifixion. Ooh, you know, yeah. Particularly if I don't like that person, but you know, I'm gonna yeah. be next. You know, and what about when I'm that wrong? When I'm that wrong about something? I think you're you right. Know, yeah. Don't it yeah. hurt me. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it's anti-human finally. That's why I try not to even attack Trump. I'll attack Trumpism. You know, but Trump, the human, he's not, not I mean e- not even Trump though. Well, he is he's <laughs> a frightened. I mean, he's disturbed, frightened. Right. So the the other thing I was going to ask you about is you went to Ferguson when it was going down. You went to South Carolina. Yeah. You went into a Trump rally with a thing on your head aren't you scared of getting hurt and stuff yeah i mean you know yeah that's i mean i think that the moment the scaredest the scared this charlottesville thing was scared and i was there more as a journalist at that Uh moment there was a real kind of fear i knew someone was going to get hurt that day when as soon as i came out it was just palpable in the air. It was a different because I'm a person who goes to like a lot of Klan rallies. Incidentally, because I was, <laughs> I was living in South Carolina, right? And you know, the first time you had a lot of fear, but then you realize that really, you know, these folks are here. To, I mean, it's I'm not at all. Let me just be clear. I'm not. I'm, there's a real history 
and current reality of like white supremacist terror. But generally, when they get a permit to do something at the state house, that's for and it's like the these old like the the sort of like white knights and the league and, right. and the league of the south. They're not going to do violence at that place usually. Right. I mean, maybe they will, but in my thing, they're really more there to perform and draw a crowd. Right. You know, Charlottesville was something different. Charlottesville, I mean, they were young. Yeah, the it young. It wasn't like Shriners. Yeah, it wasn't guys <laughs> out there in a green, purple yeah. wizard suit and all that kind of stuff. I mean, even different than the ones that happened before. Ferguson was also scary, but I mean, I, I just looked at it like, you know, I mean, I, I think that I, I don't want to get, I don't want to sound like I'm being self-righteous, but I, there was a moment where I remember being when Ferguson was Ferguson was happening. I was at an, I was actually at an academic conference, mm. and I was somebody was telling me about how they're working with you know poor and marginalized people implementing these community programs, and I was and I kind of critiqued the person. I said, "Well, why? When are we going to have more of a political program where we like invite them to rise up and all this other stuff?" And this person said, "You know what?" She said. I think that that ha- that's the thing that happens. And she said, but she said, but I think honestly, the people I'm working with are traumatized. And she said, you know, I, she said, the people I really want to see rise up are the people in this room who can afford bail, mm. you know, and we're sitting here in these hotel rooms. And she said, then you're sitting here telling me that we need to get these marginalized people to, to, to rise up. Right. And she said that, and I went upstairs and then I was looking at those images of people getting hit by rubber bullets in Ferguson. Right. And I, it was in that context, I said to my, you know, my wife, I just was like, you know, no one's going to tell us it's time to go. So I don't want to paint this as like a super heroic moment, but it was, I also remember there was an Op Ferguson, you know, there was a, a Twitter account called Op Ferguson that became crucial during that time. You know right. what I mean? It was like an interest. And I remember they, there was this tweet that said, basically, like, <laughs> they were like, you see what's going on. They were like, if everybody is like, if this, like, they're like, if this, if it's St. Louis isn't packed tomorrow, then we're all shit. And in that moment, that just landed, right? right. Like, you, like somebody could be saying that every day about everything, but in that moment for me, and so I think that that's kind of the the orientation that, like, really, are we allowed to be safe? I mean, are we allowed to feel secure and even have bodily safety when we live in an interconnected world where so many people don't, and where in, in which my bodily safety is contingent on other people's exploitation and danger. Like, I'm not allowed to have feel, to feel that, right? And we have to put ourselves on the line. So, that, that, so I, again, I'm not trying to be sound like noble or self-righteous, but that's actually how I think through that. Right, that it got to the play. Well, do you have a baby? I, not, no, not yet. Because you know? that almost, I mean, it's weird. that It's weird. It changes some things. Oh, I, I think imagine. about You know, it's yeah, weird. Yeah, it's yeah, weird. yeah. But, um, I mean, it, in both directions, though. In both yeah. directions, it's like I want to make the world safe for her, but at the same time, it's like, oh, do I want to put her daddy at risk right now? Yeah, and, and what, what's the responsible choice there, right? It's it's going to be different for everybody, but, but it, yeah, but it's also like like you said, it's a team sport too, right? Yeah. So it's not like so folks are out there in numbers. The more I know that I know that the more of us that are out there, the safer we are. That's true. That's true. I mean, the other the big thing I wanted to talk to you about yes. before uh, before we're done is is your experience of of academia and i don't mean of scholarship which is just i mean astounding and, mm-hmm. if, and we're going to put links to your stuff it's just right. beautiful papers you're you're and stuff you're doing and the podcast and everything and it's so human and so accessible and so it's uh, vital but the the video and i encourage people to look at it we'll link to it also or play some of it the lecture you did by skype for penn state listen y'all Y'all, y'all, are, y'all are here. Y'all at Penn State. Y'all are like in the upper percentage of people who are educated and have opportunities in the world. But there's a lot of lies about what's going to be fulfilling for you, right? 
But my point is I want you to have success, but I just want you to know like the real fulfillment comes when you're helping people. I know a lot people I know, even people who are more famous than me, the thing that really gives people that sense of like you're, they're on their mission in life is when you're doing stuff to help people. And that often comes when you're putting yourself on the line. So in activism spaces, there's a tremendous sense of community, a tremendous sense of fulfillment. Oh, you saw, you saw I that. watched like, the whole thing. <laughs> oh, man. And it you was watched the, that? <laughs> yeah, but the thing that was about that that was so interesting to me is it the experience of watching that video. So a, a, someone who's a, 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 I don't even know what to call a, a, a counterculture academic hero. Yes. You. Getting to come to this getting broadcast to several hundred students and they have all these cameras out in the audience that are basically documenting at least half these students on their smartphones, <laughs> on their smartphones, sleeping, right. picking their noses, not during this thing. And it's like, I feel a little bit like that when I go especially on the undergraduate level, and I'm going, I'm doing a course, I'm right. here, I've given up this book advance and this documentary to come to City University of New York and right. be with the people and give my access to them, teach them propaganda, and there'll be like two kids looking at me and everybody else is like, oh my God, um, when you go into the classroom right. of undergraduates, I mean, and then you almost, do you tell them, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? I mean, what do you do? I mean, how do you, or do you, or do you have that same sort of experience as I do where some of them are just checked out and it's like, are you going to vote? And it's like, oh, I'm not really, I don't know. Oh and God. it's like, geez, if you're not voting, then, then what are we doing here? Oh, it's, it's really, I mean, I, 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 the thing I've tried to use to navigate that is, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of stuff that will be basic in this in this community, right? In the team human community, which is, I try to, because what I what I know doesn't work. Let me start with what I know doesn't work. Yeah, right. Is like <laughs> getting mad and, and expressing disappointment to those to, right. to those students, even when it is like even when it's straight up rude, right? It's like you're on the phone. I'm right in front of you, you know, um, and I'm and like or you know like I'm I'm teaching now a podcast course. And, you know, I've had some semesters where people come knowing that, you know, I've won a Peabody Award and I, I know a little bit about doing this, yeah. right? And then I have other classes where no one has even listens to podcasts and has no idea what I've done and is kind of looking at me skeptically like, maybe you don't know what you're doing, right? And so I try to find, like, the compassion and think about our political moment. I think of our students as overworked because of the economy, right? They're, over, they're overworked. I mean, you and I grew up in a world where I spent, you know, significant chunks of my life where we didn't spend so much time in front of screens. Right. And yeah, their brains are jumbled. They're jumbled. Stuff. I mean, yeah. I know, I, I'm telling you things that, like, I learned yeah. partially from <laughs> from your work. It's like, but I'm saying, like, but I, but one of the things I look at, so I so one thing I, some, so I try to first start with that compassion and just try to con find that moment of connection with them. Like, look, y'all, I know that you all are overworked and that even when you're not just overworked, you're not sure. Like, I, you know what I realize about us, what, what has happened to our brains? My students, when they're in class with me, are not sure if they're allowed it's, it's, I, to even pay full attention to, to me. They're not, you know, the, 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 the motion that I get is like they, they feel like maybe I'm being irresponsible by only doing one thing. 
Because a lot of half the time they're doing stuff for other classes. Right. They're I checking be multitasking to, you know, I should here. be multitasking. Yeah. So that ethic. So I've, so I've, so I, some of it to me is just telling them, being able to tell them like, look, you know, let's just do this right now, you know, and from a compassionate standpoint, like not a shaming, you know, and, and to kind of real, and I find that that sometimes works. And it's also like, I'm self-consoling, right? I'm reminding right. myself that this isn't personal. This is political. Everything that I'm, we're going through right now is political. This, they're, 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 most of them have they have jobs. They haven't slept enough. You know, right? They're well, you're teaching at a public multi- university yeah, like I am. Yeah, they're multi- they're, they're working in the parents' <laughs> they're working Chinese in the parents, right? You know, what I mean, raising their kid and yeah, you know. and they're, and 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 they're not really and and it's my responsibility to a certain extent, you know, and the they you know like. And I say it's my responsibility. I want to be careful. People have lost focus on what education is supposed to be about. So they, they, they have, I think, have bought into an idea that probably education is a job training program, right? right. Where we've, right. you know, that, that the only reason right. university here is to sort of fill corporation mm-hmm. spots as opposed to some other kind of ideal that we learn about, you know, educating ourselves and participating in society. So they've bought that too. So I'm also like, that's, I also have to sell that, Right. right. But that's all. So I, so I think looking at it all through a political lens helps me to feel better about a moment where, like you said, I'm speaking to 800 students. <laughs> I'm I'm doing this right. I mean, I had I was going to do that particular lecture. I I was I literally squoze that in right before I was I walked from that lecture 10 minutes later and did a moth performance. <sighs> you know, so I really did like, you know, I'm, I'm like really kind of making a little bit of a sacrifice. But I understand it's all political and um, and that. Really, ultimately, the motivation that I'm fighting, the thing, the things that produce that moment are the same things we're all fighting together, right? Right. <laughs> so you got to have compassion for it. Yeah. 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 And, 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 the, and I should say, you know, Dana Jane, who is an incredible comrade who led that, um, and, and my mentor, Sam Richards, who teaches that course, that course is one of the, one of the, it's the largest course. I don't know if largest is the thing to be proud of, but it's the largest course on race relations. Um, one of the, in the country, you know, he has like, and so he he really is trying to create those moments, you know, but it's tricky. Let me ask you one last question now. I mean, what do you see as, as if there even is such a thing, as a kind of a primary goal or a North Star as you work? You know, is it, uh, sometimes I'm I'm thinking universal basic assets is what's going to do it. You know, economic mm-hmm. equality. Yes. But then I think, no, racial justice and social justice and all that. Or we got to make systemic changes. That's all the, oh no, the system. We're going to make incremental changes. Or we're going to, you know, go to the top and change Washington or just let's make local reality yeah. different. So yeah. Where, 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 how are you focusing right now when right. you could go at any level of this fractal of injustice? It's so true. I mean, well, we, so we in Philadelphia, I belong to a group called 215 People's Alliance. And uh, it's one of the groups I belong to. And um, we do believe in, political power building, trying to build a, a base that's political power. So a lot of the work is local in the sense that we're, you know, we're looking at things like how our public education is funded in Philly. We're looking at, you know, issues of criminal justice. You know, 215 PA was a big part of the alliance that got Larry Krasner mm. elected. Um, but I do, I am aware of the ways that that kind of municipalism can also be a little bit limited, right? Right. So I think that, I mean, I do think that you know, it's funny. Like we just, you know, it's funny. You and I, it's funny. We're, here we are, November seventh. We haven't even talked about the midterms at all, which yeah. is great in a way. But I do think that we can't afford. I mean, that was one lesson I learned in the mo- in the in the years after sort of the Black Lives Matter series of tremendous mobilization, right? But and then very little political power earned out of that, 
Right. You know, how, how, you know, I understand. And I get why people are like, you know, I don't think like electoral politics is the, the answer per se. But at the same time, it's like, how can you like have these police killing people and people are let off like that? And then you're not even going to control that. Sh- you at least got to control that. Right. At that level. Right. So to me, just that basic thing. And I think that also that, you know, what I, we saw with the Krasner coalition, right, was that. In the, in the ability to get control of the DA, which who has real power and has begun to unroll that out. Also, you're creating a community of people who can do other things. You're also forging a model of co-governance, which we've tried to do with Krasner, right, that can start to look at other issues, right? So to me, like that kind of multiple layer thing is one of the ways I, that I, I, I think that that's really valuable. And I think that, you know, I try, it's, it's also like a, cla- a, a coalition that involves a lot of working class people. Um, so I think for me, that's, that's, that's kind of one, one area where I try to do it. And I just, you know, I mean, I don't know. I think, um, I, I'm interested in the in the kinds of work that's happening around the gig economy mm. and, you know, even, you know, the sort of intersection between that kind of workers movement and also like stuff where people are starting to think about algorithms and the work, you know, I mean, I'm, there's all kinds of stuff going on where people are looking at the intersections of all those things. And so I think that to me, yeah, it's those, those are the kind of movements I'm excited about. Yeah. And I guess it doesn't matter which as long as someone's doing something. You know, yeah, there's a yeah, whole bunch yeah. of levels. It's not there's so many levels. Less is a problem than is a, a oh wow, there's a great variety of wonderful <laughs> things I could be doing. That's that's <laughs> the thing, and I think and I think the thing is, you know, it's you know, is that there are so many movements. I mean, I think that we have to we I mean we should we should think critically about what's more effective than the other thing, but I do think that one of the things that this media, the current media arrangement we have, is it kind of it, we, there's still like this moment where people are like oh. There's like a protest. Like it's like that's the only time it happens. It's like, yeah. yo, there's always a protest. People are always resisting right. in all places all the time in different ways. And we just have to remember that. You know what I mean? Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was activist, musician, and professor Chenjirai Kumanyika. You can find his Peabody award-winning podcast, Uncivil, wherever fine podcasts are streamed. You can support Team Human and even get a copy of my upcoming book, Team Human, by subscribing to our show. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You can also read my columns based on the show's monologues at medium.com slash at Rushkoff. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens with new strategies for intervention in the machine. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that 
rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 